You're listening to The Reality Show, hosted by Dan Rutstein, president of immersive tech company, Ladoopa. Each episode delves deep into the power and potential of immersive technology in business, entertainment, or sport, now and in the future. So welcome back to The Reality Show, and this is a probably a different to usual episode because I am sitting next to a rather interesting man. I'm going to let him introduce himself um, and he can say what he's wearing as well um, just because uh, to set the scene. Yeah hello everybody my name is squadron leader Adam Collins. I'm Red 10 the supervisor with the Red Arrows and as I'm just back from flying I'm wearing my red suit. So um, for our American listeners the equivalent of the Red Arrows is the Blue Angels. Absolutely. So you have the Blue Angels in the US Navy, the Thunderbirds in the US Air Force, and the Red Arrows essentially are the Royal Air Force aerobatic team. So we uh, do the same role, uh, promoting uh, not just the military, uh, but in this case also the Great Britain on a global stage, which is why we're out here in the US. So uh, for anyone who follows me or anyone in the British government, uh, they will have seen over the last few weeks that the Red Arrows are definitely in North America. There's been incredible coverage of all that's going on. So could you say a little bit about why you're over in North America and then we can talk a little bit more about how you use technology and so on. Absolutely. So we're over in North America for uh, just over 11 weeks, 11 to 12 weeks on the tour. Uh, started off in Canada, we're moving into the US, back into Canada throughout the tour and then finish up in, on the West Coast uh, in October before then making our way back to the UK. And really we're over here representing Great Britain, promoting everything that is great about Great Britain. Um, we're working along with the Department for International Trade and wherever we go we are uh, demonstrating the agility, the precision and the teamwork of the Royal Air Force but then backing that up with representing Great Britain and really showing what, uh, what Great Britain is all about. So it's a real privilege for us to represent uh, the nation whilst we're over here. And doing these sort of huge tours over such a long period of time and taking in so many cities and such large audiences... Is that relatively rare that you do it like this? Absolutely. We do uh, two tours at the end of every three seasons, if you like. So we have a home season and then we'll have two seasons where we'll do the home displays and then go on a tour. Normally a small tour in one year, a larger tour the next and then into our home season. So for us, this is the first time we've done a tour this size in North America full stop. We have been here before many years ago, but only for a couple of weeks. So really 11 weeks spanning most of North America is, is a, a big adventure for us, big undertaking, especially as our aircraft um, has relatively short legs, so we can't air to air refuel. So just getting across the Atlantic was an adventure in the first place. Well, I'm going to have to ask you about that now before we move on to the other stuff. So how do you do that? Uh, so we can fly for about um, an hour and three quarters to two hours maximum, uh, which equates to about 700 miles. So from our home base in the Midlands, uh, or uh, Lincolnshire and Scampton, we flew up to Lossiemouth in the north of Scotland. Uh, we then flew across to Iceland, to Reykjavik, from there to Greenland, Greenland into Labrador in Canada, and then started hopping our way down there. So before we did our first display, we'd already done five or six hops to get to Chicago, having already validated our display with the authorities in uh, Halifax, and then moved on from there. So it is a real adventure in, in this kind of aircraft. Oh, extraordinary. Normally we get quite deep into the sort of immersive storytelling quite early on, but because the Red Arrows is such a special organisation, um, I want to talk a bit more about that side of it. So how many people do you think are going to see you at displays across this, uh, this tour, and what do you hope that you will achieve through that? Uh, it's hard to put a number on how many. Um, we did a tour to the Middle East uh, a couple of years ago, 
and it's thought that around 1.2 billion people saw us based on live shows and online footprints so it's, it's difficult to predict how many people will see the show through other channels the biggest shows we're doing in the US the, the seafront shows or the waterfront shows you can have up to a million people over a weekend watching those shows wow. and that's just live for one event so really the footprint it can be assessed to some extent when we come back home um, but it is a, very, a great opportunity to showcase what we do and to uh, and promote Great Britain on the global stage. So obviously a million people seeing it live uh, helps with those numbers but the the social media stuff's been great. You've There's videos all the time and because of the, the formations you fly in, because of the use of the, um, the coloured plumes of smoke, it really does make some incredible footage. It does, and it's not just the display. So we're doing about 22, 23 displays while we're over here. That's the full aerobatic show. We're then doing at least the same number of high-profile flypass and ground engagement as well. And really, it's the, the high-profile flypass um, that you've seen most of the pictures from. So it's my role as the supervisor. I also fly the 10th jet and we'll do the photo chase with our photographer in the back seat. So um, again, it's a really privileged situation for me to be in, to be able to look at it all from the outside and then hopefully along with, with Ash, the photographer, capture some of those images and some of those videos from our aircraft. And before we talk about how you do that and, and why you do that, uh, it's worth saying, so uh, this podcast will be coming out a few days after the display that I saw yesterday in Houston, which was on 9-11. Um, and there was a very sort of, in America, 9-11 is a very important day, and you're obviously servicemen, so you did something special as part of that. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So what you saw was what we term an enhanced flypast, so not a full aerobatic display, but a series of some of our more well-known shapes. Uh, this year, for example, we have several that are commemorating anniversaries, so uh, our Apollo shape to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landings, which is particularly relevant over here and then Concorde um, celebrating the 50th anniversary since the first flight. Uh, what we've managed to do here, because of our red, white and blue smoke that we trail, uh, we're doing um, our, what we're calling the Stars and Stripes flypast, which was particularly poignant yesterday, where we're smoking, um, three of the jets are smoking blue and white, the remainder smoking red and white, and that gives um, essentially a long uh, Stars and Stripes in the sky, which yesterday obviously was dedicated uh, in memory of all those who lost their lives at 9-11. Yeah, and we'll be posting the video of that because I think it was it was very special and it's received a lot of coverage, which is which is wonderful. Just in terms of the the shapes, how does that come about? Is there you know you're like a dance troupe with a choreographer who who sits down and works out because obviously you've got moving pieces. How do you work out what's possible and therefore what new formations to work on from a sort of viewing point of view before you then have to try and work out how you actually fly them? Well, there's basically a back catalogue of formation shapes and manoeuvres that have been done over the years. So the Red Arrows have been flying since 1964 and over the years these different shapes and different manoeuvres have been developed. Uh, they're all sitting in this back catalogue and then really it's Red One's job to put the show together. So the show will be subtly different every year. It's in two halves. So the first half of it is all nine aircraft doing these big shapes, doing the aerobatic uh, formation shapes. The second half is the more dynamic stuff with the opposition manoeuvres. But that first half is really down to Red One to string together five or six, maybe seven of the big shapes into a sequence that works nicely and then incorporating other shapes into the second half when the formation is split down. So ultimately there's only so many ways you can fly nine aircraft around the sky and those formation shapes, you can't necessarily transition from uh, a particular shape to another one. You might have to go through different shapes. So really it's, it's down to Red One to work out how he wants to do that and he'll take things into account such as anniversaries or particular things we want to 
um, either commemorate or celebrate for that particular season. So given that you've performed in, I think the Red Rose have performed in 57 countries and done nearly 5,000 shows, is the full extent of what is possible with that aircraft in terms of formations, has everything that can be done been done at some point or is there still space to do cleverer things without taking too many risks? Um, there is still space to innovate slightly in the manoeuvres. Um, over the years since we've started displaying, safety regulations for very good reason have tightened up. So some of the manoeuvres that you would have seen the team doing back in the, the 70s, for example, uh, just aren't possible now and, and wouldn't be, um, we wouldn't be able to do them with the regulations. So above all, we, we want to make a dynamic and a memorable uh, show for the public, but above all, it has to be safe. And that's really what we're taking into account. The other thing we have to allow for when we're over here is the regulations in the US are subtly different from those at home. So there are some manoeuvres that we can't do here that we would do at home. And likewise, we would be allowed to do certain manoeuvres here that uh, that we can't do at home. So we're balancing the two sets of regulations and then balancing being able to train to do these manoeuvres safely to give the most dynamic show we can while still ultimately being safe. So can you give an example of what would be allowed in one country and not in another? Uh, very simply, in the UK we can fly a manoeuvre towards the crowd um, and we can be aerobatic pointing towards the crowd as long as we stop doing that within a certain distance. Uh, under the, the US regulations we can't be pointing directly at the crowd and do an aerobatic manoeuvre so we have to um, either be parallel to the crowd line or pointing away. A very brief sort of point towards the crowd is fine but we can't um, for example, fly in at 90 degrees to the crowd whilst doing aerobatics. So that's a simple change that we made um, whilst we were out here and it's something that we planned for early in the season so that we're not changing our display too much from the 30 or so displays we've already done in the UK this season. Okay. So for, for the, those who've tuned in thinking which is, we're going to go deep into the immersion, we are going to talk about the immersive storytelling at some point, but I'm, still, I'm enjoying this, so we're going to keep going on this for, for a little bit longer. So f for the layperson... How hard is this to do? Because you're all, you've all flown operation. That's part of you know, becoming a red eye. You have yeah, to absolutely. have done an operational tour. But how difficult is it to fly in those formations? You know, so close to each other. What? So we actually have to relearn how to fly formations. So as you said, everybody who joins the team, we're all active duty pilots, as you'd call it in the US. Uh, so we are regular um, RAF fast jet pilots. Everyone has to have a minimum amount of experience, um, having flown a frontline tour and flown a frontline fighter aircraft. And then we go through the selection process to get onto the team. Once you're on the team... Uh, and sorry, I read, I think, is it for every spot on the team, there's at least 10 applicants. Is that right? Uh, average out about that. We have about 35, 40 applicants for three spots on the team. So that will then be shortlisted to around nine. And that nine will spend a week with the team. And through various means, the, the three will be, normally three will be chosen from there. But once they join the team, having already been very experienced fighter pilots, they're used to flying close to other aircraft in cloud and so on. That's normally a maximum of three to four aircraft. So when you're now building nine aircraft into these shapes, the way we're flying it is very different. So if you hear any of Red One's radio transmissions, which I play over the, the airwaves when I'm commentating, uh, you'll hear that he speaks with a very metronomic cadence. And the other pilots are act actually reacting to the rhythm and the tone of his voice rather than the movement of his, of his aircraft. If you wait until his aircraft moves, if you imagine Red Two, who's right next to Red One, if Red 1 moves a little bit, Red 2 hasn't got too far to go. Red 8, who's all the way out on the edge of the formation, a small bank angle change at Red 1 is a big change for Red 8 in terms of the amount of sky he has to move through. So the only way to keep those lines straight is for everybody to be anticipating that movement and the further away from the leader, the more that anticipation has to happen. So to give you an example, uh, Red 1 would say, coming right now. And on the end of now, 
He's moving his control input the same every single time for a right-hand uh, roll. Red 2 will be reacting just before the end of now, but red 8 all the way out on the right-hand side, he's going to have already moved a, a significant distance before the end of now comes, which is um, what we train to get those lines really, really straight. Otherwise, you just have a almost like a lasso effect down the line of aircraft as everyone's reacting to what's going on next to them. So in your pre-season phase, for want of a better way of describing it, if people were to be looking over the skies of the Midlands carefully, they might see some quite ugly formations at the beginning of the year when you're trying out new things. Is that unfair? Um, I wouldn't say ugly necessarily. It's, it's very much a building block approach. So when the new members join the team, uh, Red One will start flying with them on their own. So as a three-ship to refine um, or, or that building block approach to teaching the manoeuvring. As they get uh, better at it, then we'll start adding in the jets further out. And the further you go away from the leader, generally the more experienced they are on the team. So they've already learned those techniques. It's now just refining them for being in their particular position they fly in. So there will be, um, when you watch us practicing at Scampton, you will see errors, which uh, by the way we train, they should get less and less obvious until we get into the season. But every show we do, every practice we do throughout the, the summer season, we're still tearing that apart afterwards analysing it on the, the video, freeze-framing it, and what the public may think is a, a next-to-perfect show, we will then spend half an hour tearing apart and yeah. working out how we can do it better. Great, thank you. I mean, yeah, to be clear, you should hear the unedited version of this podcast. So, you know, it's, uh, practice is important. So um, let's talk about sort of why you're, how you do the publicity and why that's so important. So, see, a lot of what you do as the Red Arrows is what we used to call when I worked in government, soft power. Um, so it's, a, it's about using this not just to wow the crowds at the event but it's about sort of portraying something about Britain so in your role in terms of making sure this stuff gets filmed and pictures are taken to make it accessible how is that approached? So we have a, a dedicated public affairs or public relations uh, team um, they're really uh, in charge of how that gets produced and pushed out but what I will do as Red 10 is help them to get the images by flying the photographer to, to really give people a good idea and a good impression of what we're doing so as a team our main aim is to inspire people and that's why we do our displays is to inspire people on the ground be it to uh, join the military or go into science technology engineering maths or to come to Great Britain and, and see what see what we have to offer it's it's relatively easy to do that in front of a live audience because you can see what's going on what we can actually give you with the film and with the the uh, photographs is to see what it's like from in the cockpit or if you haven't seen us live to see what we do um, through the, through various media, be it online or however. Now the fact that we can use 360 cameras, um, we can use action cameras and also stills, and when I'm photo chasing I can be right in amongst the other aircraft, means that you can get a view that you're not going to get anywhere else. Even from watching a show live, you're not going to see that view from inside my cockpit or inside the, the back seat from my cockpit, seeing all the other aircraft around us uh, and seeing the views from on top of the formation while the, the loops are upside down, and it's really giving that wow factor that we can then present to the public online and say, look, this is what we do, um, and this is a view you're not going to get anywhere else. So in terms of traditional imagery, so just sort of normal photos, are there any particular ones that have done particularly well? You know, is it the iconic thing you're flying past or the angle? or what, what, Which ones have, have been interesting to the public? It's a combination, actually. This year there's a couple of favourites that I have that are very different. So we do our spring training for a month in either Greece or Cyprus, so we have um, guaranteed good weather before we start the UK summer season. Um, I have the ability out there to photo chase a fair amount whilst the practice displays are going on. And there's a couple of shots that, um, that Ash in my backseat got there where 
we've actually gone up into the top of the loop with the formation and then stayed very high above the formation and got um, spectacular shots looking down where you can see the whole manoeuvre in smoke. You can see the, the Greek coastline behind, uh, the bright blue sea underneath and the, and the bright red jets against them. So things like that give you a very dramatic look into it. And we will plan some of those. We'll, we'll go out to try and get a specific shot. And sometimes the light just works, the positioning just works, and we'll get something uh, that we weren't expecting. The other side of it, as you mentioned, is things like the New York fly past going down the Hudson River a few weeks ago, where we're in a position where on the one side we had the Statue of Liberty, on the other side we had Manhattan skyline, and you just find the spot, look at what the light's doing, and then just get that eye focusing on the iconic backdrop, but making sure we've got the jets in the foreground, preferably with the red, white, and blue on, if not um, just white smoke. So a combination of the two, the backdrop and what we're trying to achieve. And then at the other end, you're getting right up close and personal over the top of a manoeuvre, so you're in the thick of it with jets all around you. And the, the background there isn't as much of a factor, but can still add a lot to the photo. And are the, are the, cause obviously, it's, it's quite easy with social media to see what's, you know, what's working and what isn't. Are the shots that garner the most attention the ones that you expect to? Or sometimes is there something that... Sort of catches the public imagination which is wasn't the one that you thought it would be a bit of both to be honest there's some that when I see it out the cockpit I can imagine what Ash is capturing on the camera and I think yeah that's going to be a cracker there's others that I'll go into a position we'll get a photo and there's either an effect on the ground or quite often a shadow of the jets on the sea or a shadow of the jets on the ground that will spark um, enthusiasm and interest with the public or sometimes it might be just a picture that we used to seeing so often that we're almost not quite numb to it, but it, it's something we're very used to seeing. But if it's something the public haven't seen for a while or, or see for the first time, then that can spark a real interest that um, we, we might not have um, really envisaged when we took the photo. Yeah. Um, so you do, obviously, traditional photos, you do video, and you've done some 360 work. So I, I want to talk a little bit about what we're about to do uh, with my company working with you guys. But with, with the 360 footage, again, presumably the, the thinking behind it is, is, again, it's just increasing the level of engagement by giving people a broader view than just a simple video. Absolutely. And the 360 uh, footage generally works better right from in the middle of the formation. So if we're doing that, we'll generally put another pilot, um, either myself or somebody else, in the back seat of one of the display jets so that we're right in the middle of the formation. So when you've got the 360 coverage, you're seeing not just the team leader out front and the wingman on either side but you're seeing aircraft behind you're seeing the smoke coming out from behind you're seeing potentially the head of the pilot that's in the back seat holding the camera and that's really where you get the, the full immersion from being in the middle of the display and that's something I can't give you um, by commentating on the ground or I can't give you by photo chasing because you are right there in the thick of it really the only place you're going to see that other than on that 360 camera is if you're in the cockpit in the middle of that display. And what sort of things have you done with the 360 footage so far? Um, to be honest, for our team, it's fairly early days with using the 360 footage. I know some of the US teams have been using it for some time. Uh, so we're really experimenting with what works well with the public. Um, it's great um, seeing children, young people putting the VR headsets on at um, STEM events, at shows. Not just air shows, but um, events where we're encouraging people to go into um, further education or um, encouraging them into STEM And events. you do a lot there, you visit schools and universities. And Absolutely, so. so I mentioned the stats for this tour, roughly 20 displays, about the same number of high profile fly pass, but we're doing over 100 ground engagement events. And that's where we're not just engaging with politicians or, or business leaders, but, but down to students, air cadets, everyone in between, and really using those VR, um, VR uh, sets, seeing what's going on inside the formation. You can see a real reaction to people when they're using those and actually 
even the pilots on the team are quite surprised that when you put the things on and, and have a look, oh, actually, yeah, this is quite spectacular. Yeah, you? yesterday um, at, at the event in Houston, I showed a just a short video that we shot in a, as, a, as a test of the 360 footage being played in our fully immersive dome to one of the pilots. Yeah. He was very impressed and surprised because obviously he's seen versions of this, but to actually to experience it while on the ground, standing in a dome, is a completely different ball game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because we haven't seen much of it in the past, and we're so used to when the when the pilots flying the display are immersed in it, if you like, they're concentrating on doing the best job they can. They're staring at the leader, making sure their references are right, listening to all his commands and not really having a great deal of time just to look around and soak up what's going on. You only really get that opportunity if you're sitting in the back seat, not actually flying the aircraft. So for a lot of the pilots, seeing it on the, the VR sets and seeing it for the first time in an immersive dome, you're actually just purely there to enjoy what you're looking at as opposed to working hard to take information. Yeah, and it's worth saying, I should probably thank them personally for this, but the quality is fantastic. Because when we were testing the footage in the dome, our slight concern was, because you can have issues with 360 footage and in the dome, around motion sickness. Um, but the way the, 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 way the, the footage is shot and stabilised, you don't have any of that, which is, which is wonderful. So congratulations to, to the guys who shoot it, because it's done in a really user-friendly way. That's great. And it's really a thing on the team is everybody from all of the blues our support staff to the to the pilots we're we are here trying to do the best job that we can and improve every time we do it so whether it's uh, flying a display or holding a 360 degree camera in the back seat we're always trying to do the best we can and I think it we realize the importance of that footage and the importance of the social media and people's reaction to it so we want to get the best footage and the best imagery we can um, for people's enjoyment but also for us to demonstrate what the team's all about and, and what we do. So do either you or your colleagues, have you spoken to your equivalent in the American and the Canadian display teams about things that they've tried or have you just seen some of the things they've, they've done to get inspiration? So from this tour we've actually seen all the other North American display teams, so the two uh, US ones and the Canadian Snowbirds, so we've had a good chat with them. Uh, there are different rules um, amongst the Air Forces and the US Navy and so on as to what you can have in the cockpit, how you can mount it and so on. So at the moment we're a little bit limited with how we can mount cameras in the cockpit, so a lot of what we do will be handheld or from a, a fixed position, um, whereas other, um, other aircraft types they have the ability to mount multiple cameras in the cockpit for example and get that footage. So there's a few differences there but it's interesting just seeing the output they're putting on social media. Um, even some of the solo display teams, the Raptor and the F-35, having that 360 camera hard mounted and then just in the editing suite being able to pan around and get the best effect from those manoeuvres. So I think the thing we've probably learnt the most about is how for a given manoeuvre you can always be looking at the most spe spectacular part of that manoeuvre, whether it's looking out of the side of the aircraft, the back, the front and really tailoring where you're looking on the edit to make the most of that uh, position. Fantastic. Now I'm, I'm conscious of time so Let's make this the last question. Will be what if if technology and regulations allowed it? What would you do with this sort of technology? Is there something that you'd love to do if either the the tech could allow it or the camera position? Is there sort of one thing you're hankering to do but can't yet do? I think having multiple camera angles, which obviously the 360 by definition will give you, but multiple camera angles for a fixed um, a fixed action camera. Having a 360 mounted in, a, in the best position possible, but then something that some of the parachute teams do now is actually live linking what's going on 
in the air to big screens on the ground. So that's fairly straightforward if you're in a parachute and you've got direct line of sight. If you're in a, a metal aircraft um, where we have to have clearances for anything that's transmitting and so on, then that's more of a hurdle. But I think having some kind of live feed, not to detract from what's actually going on in the air, but something that can be seen either real-time or relatively shortly after the event, um, would be quite spectacular to do, but it would have to be very closely uh, monitored and, and the clearances to do that, I think, are some way off. But that's something that I think could be quite effective. Brilliant. Very good. Well, Red 10, thank you very much indeed for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Reality Show. If you enjoyed listening, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find us on social media at Reality Show Pod. Thank you.